Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with King of the Hill competitors, Julie Zell and Steve Clausen. King of the Hill was a legendary snowboard competition held in Thompson Pass back in the 1990s that hosted a number of different perspectives. There were the partiers, the general participants, and the competitors. Julie and Steve were competitors. They were the ones who got up early and made conscious notes of their surroundings and snow conditions. If they partied, they did so sparingly knowing full well that the next day they could be deep in the Chugach Mountains, surrounded by variable conditions. For their skill and preparation, Julie and Steve both won King of the Hill multiple times. Steve won twice, and Julie won three times. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juno, Derek Adolph. Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Julie Zell and Steve Clausen. For both of them, Thompson Pass, during those nascent years of snowboarding, was an outlaw world of guideless backcountry runs, heavy partying, and the criminality that King of the Hill attracted. It was far from the world Julie and Steve had come from. In many ways, it represented a more primitive order to life, where everyone was able to adhere to their baser instincts. Today, you can see the lasting impressions King of the Hill made on more modern-day snowboard competitions, like the Verbier stop in the Freeride World Tour and Kings and Queens of Corbett's in Jackson Hole, although the extracurriculars of those competitions are much more tame and less primitive. So here they are, Julie Zell and Steve Clausen. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude Conversations. Listen more. Then you talk. Go to work! Steve, you said you went snowboarding today. Yes, I did. And would you call it like kind of a, some late runs or what was that? Yeah, I, I got up there late today, probably got on the mountain at about two o'clock. And I met a couple friends up there. I met uh, Mike, who uh, works at Tahoe Lab who makes some of the boards up at Tahoe Lab and Tahoe. And uh, and then I met one of the guys that works for me, Frank Odo, up there today too. Sweet. And and Julie, do you, you're in Jackson Hole. Do you get up there as well? I do. It's been out of control here this winter. And I have not gone as much as maybe I normally would. But I am riding 
the lower mountain in lines I probably haven't ridden in 30 years just because the lines are out of control up high. We have been in, what did they call it? The river of the jet stream. I don't know. I heard, I wish I could remember what they had said, but it has just been dumping and dumping and dumping here for two or so weeks. You know, I think that the jet stream, we in Alaska always talk about like, oh, Japan got our winter this year. You know, hopefully we'll get their winter next year. So I think that maybe is that along the same lines? Jackson Hole got America's winter this year. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Mammoth is is doing pretty well this year, Steve, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we didn't have much until we got like a 10 foot storm three weeks ago. And then it's been good since then. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's been far and few between with storms this year. Yeah, we were pretty thin right up until about three weeks ago. And now we're well over 400 inches. Oh, wow. We had at one point it was you know, four feet in three days. In Jackson, it'll be more of the, not the big California storm where you get it all at once. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, three inches, eight inches, 14 inches, two inches, eight inches. And it just will go on for, it went on and on for a couple of weeks. It was amazing. That is awesome. So the first, I guess it's more of a statement than anything else to, to start this conversation out with. But Steve, I wanted to, to tell you this, that, uh, that I grew up with a saying that included your name. Oh yeah. <laughs> wow. And it was said when anything was like cool or steezy, we'd say, yeah, flossing like Steve Clausen. Wow. <laughs> I'll take it, man. Have sure. you ever heard that before? I have never heard that, but I'm going to write it down. But oh, I'm going to write it down and remember it. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is awesome. Flossing like Clausen. <laughs> oh, I will take that, man. Any time, any day. I like that one. And you know what's what's kind of interesting about that is I heard that from my, my, uh, my dad, Scott Liska and both of my brothers, Jake and Derek, um, growing <laughs> up. And like I said, I, I had, I had no idea who you were. I was just like, Oh, this guy's gotta be, you know, pretty steezy. And then when I lived in mammoth, I was like, Oh, Steve Clausen owns wave rave. And then as I got older and, you know, I started doing this, this, um, these interviews for King of the Hill, I would talk to my uncle Jay and my dad, Scott, and both of them would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, like Steve's style was like just so smooth and so buttery. And so like the saying has gone through like this evolution throughout my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool to hear, man. You just made my day. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. So all these questions go to both of you. So um, we can kind of like obviously interchange, like if somebody feels more comfortable answering it first, then we'll go that. I think that just these things will just happen naturally throughout the conversation. But what was your first impression of Valdez? Go ahead, Julie. <laughs> 
My first impression, well, my first impression was total terror because my brothers had gone up and I heard horror story after horror story of Diamond and Wesk. And I just didn't even think that I had the ability to go ride those mountains. And when I went up there, I was definitely awestruck, naive, um, and once I got in them, I guess I discovered that me and the Chugach are pretty tight. <laughs> That's great. Nice. Yeah, for me, I guess I saw Greg Stump's movie Groove Requiem, and it had uh, Scott Schmidt and Dan Donnelly going up there and to Valdez. And that was the first time I think any of us really saw skiing in Valdez was that movie. Mm -hmm. And then that spurred me on to go up there the next season and go check it out. And I went up there with a friend of mine, Dave Barlia, and we went up to the Sena mm -hmm. and we stayed up there and, uh, I got, I went and watched the first world extreme skiing championships. I watched that from the road and it wasn't until the next year when they had the first snowboard competition, which was the world extremes. And then the next year was King of the Hill. So it was, it was awesome. I mean, my first impression of it was just massive mountains that you could get a lift on a heli right to the top of and ride down on your own. You didn't even have to have a guide back then. So, yeah. Yeah. What was it like to pick a peak? And if the heli pilot thought he could land on it, he, he did. And he dropped you off with no guides. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you had to pick a peak that you knew you could get back to the road from. Okay. So that was one of the criteria. Um, every once in a while, but not very often, you'd pick something where they'd have to pick you up somewhere back there somewhere and then fly you to another peak. But you rarely did that because you never were quite sure if they were going to come and get you. So. <laughs> um and, you know, we did, there were guides up there, but like once you went with a guide a couple times, then it would be like, okay, who wants to go to Diamond? Mm -hmm. And there was no guides. And if you had four people that wanted to go to Diamond and you just, you could just jump in the A-star or the, what did we have, A-stars back then? Or what was it? It was. I don't remember. Yeah. Did and, the bell and, come later? Yeah. Or was no, that it was the, you're right. It was the Bell Jet Ranger that they were using back then. And so um, you just get in and they bring you up there, drop you off and fly away. And you're up there with your three buddies. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I did any uh, peaks without the guide. Um, my first year we did the plane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My first run was up above ABA. And I was with this friend of my brother's and they said, oh, we're going to meet up. They dropped us off. We're going to meet up at the glacier 
And I was like, really? Where do I go? <laughs> oh, anywhere you want. So I started riding down and I saw this track and I was kind of following. And then I, right at the last minute, realized this track went into a hole and I cut hard left. And I sort of looked back over my shoulder and I th remember thinking, that's weird. I don't see a track coming out. And I started hugging more to the right side where the other people had been. And when we got to the bottom, Doug Coombs was back up there and they were pulling someone out of that hole. Oh, no way. Could you imagine if I had ridden right in on top of the guy? Oh, my God. That was my first run. That somebody fell into a crevasse. Yeah. And I didn't even know what a crevasse was at the time. I was just like, whoa, that was <laughs> close. What was that? <laughs> and did that influence your understanding of Thompson Pass at all, like from that point forward? Uh, it influenced my fear factor, my <laughs> careful factor, right? Yeah. I still didn't have great understanding. You know, it wasn't until... I don't know, at the end of the week after the first King of the Hill and I found out what a Bergstrom was and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I I stepped through a cornice on my first year. My snowboard stopped me from going through. Yeah, fear factor was definitely my uh, learning curve. I knew nothing. What's interesting about hearing all of these stories from King of the Hill or even all of these stories about those early days of snowboarding and people just going up and pioneering these these spots that had never been ridden before is, to me, it seems like you are either actively afraid when you're up there or it's this almost kind of willful ignorance of the active dangers. There was definitely some of both types of people there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I made a point to go up there several years in a row and just hang around the Sena and try to get on with the good guides. And my goal was to try to get on with Coombs, mm -hmm. with Coombs, with a group of two guys that were decently good. And then he'd grab me as kind of like somebody to either go first or last, you know, so that he knew that he could go to some little more gnarly places. And so there was probably three or four years where I kind of played it like that. I sometimes I'd go with Rick Armstrong. Um, sometimes Julie, your brother was guiding up there some too, right? Yep. Yeah. And then, um, but Coombs is who I like to go with as much as possible. I kind of just put myself in that position to try to be there if he wanted somebody to go with. And so that's what I tried to do. And that's how I learned a lot up there is from him. From Coombs. Yeah. You know, in that scenario, Steve, that you'd mentioned earlier or that we had talked about earlier, the first ascent with no guides, what was going through your mind standing at the top of the mountain? trying to make sure that nothing was going to slide and having your islands of safety that you could get to. Mm -hmm. um, we were all pretty naive back then. 
um, made some mistakes and learned from those mistakes. Like one time I went out on a cornice on the top of diamond. I thought I was in one spot and I was actually in a different spot and the whole cornice collapsed below me. And I sent a size of a cornice, like the size of a school bus flying down diamond. Oh, you know, man. With a couple, yep. I was pretty sketchy. Um, I would say that's the worst thing that happened when I was up there in terms of the closest call of my own per with, it was my own personal mistake. Um, but, you know, for me, what ended up happening is that I kept going up there and then it was exactly nine years until the guiding got to the point where you had to go guided. It changed from being like 500 bucks a day to like a thousand bucks a day. And then the guides were becoming really restrictive. And at that time, I, I stopped going and I started flying over to Europe and going to Verbier instead because I could guide myself over there. You know, and I'd go and spend two or three weeks over there and not go to Valdez. And um, just because of that reason, for the guiding reason. And before, you know, those nine years where it became more restrictive, was that the era of, you know, the Vietnam vets that were the pilots and you know they were just making all these crazy landings and they were flying like you know they were still at war basically <laughs> yeah i mean chet he 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 wore the tail rotor chain from one of the three or four helicopters he crashed in vietnam around his wrist as a bracelet no way yeah and um you know, he had a, a firearm with him at all times. And there was some times we'd just get out of the chopper at the top of something. He'd shut it down, come out with a gun and just start firing it off at stuff, you know, and <laughs> right, Julie, you've seen that, right? <laughs> I didn't have the pleasure of seeing that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I do remember uh, the first day of the comp and... Or no, it wasn't the first day of the comp. It was maybe it was extreme day when we were getting the heli run. Mm -hmm. And that I think that was the first year. And Lisa Wax out there calling names with her sidearm strapped to her leg. And I was like, what <laughs> the? Whoa, I'm scared. I'm not even sure what I'm scared of right now. I'm in an environment that's just so far over my head. I don't even know what's happening. And that was my first run in a heli ever was on that contest run. And I was, I was sure I was more scared of the heli ride than I was of the actual extreme run. You know, that's, that's a really interesting point, Julie, is that, uh, I mean, I guess what I'm reading is like kind of like the subtext is like this, this thing, uh, King of the Hill was something totally foreign and almost like a little bit primitive, yeah. uh, compared to maybe what you and Steve were used to down in the States. Oh, I, I grew up a ski racer. <laughs> I mean, the King of the Hill event was like, what the hell? What am I doing here? What are the, these people, these mountains? And all I, could, all I could think was, well, everything in Alaska is just bigger. They do it bigger. They go bigger. The mountains are bigger. The mm -hmm. moose are bigger. 
<laughs> and I just kind of tried to roll with it, but I don't know if I was always super uh, open-minded about some of the stuff that seemed like a free-for-all. I, I think I had a healthy sense of apprehension and fear that kept me safe, really. What was the, the stuff that gave you that healthy apprehension? Imminent death. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know at the time, I guess, I didn't really know what could kill me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I didn't snowboard because I wanted to die anywhere on a mountain. I actually remember uh, a great chat Nick Parada and I had at the bar at the Totem late one night. And we were going on and on about how much we both hated the expression, oh, they at least they died doing what they love. And I said, you know, F that. I don't want to die doing what I love. I want to die old age in my bed. Mm -hmm. And so we made a pact, if anything ever happened to us, to make sure that they took care of the folks that, you know, set them straight, if anybody said that. (laughs) Had we had an untimely event in the mountains. I remember you saying that way back then, Julie. I remember (laughs) talking like that. Right? Yeah. I remember the very first uh, in the World Extreme Snowboard Championship, which was the one for one year before King of the Hill. And I remember showing up up there and it was the first run. And I remember John Greiber was the first guy to drop in on run number one. And he went like right out of the start gate straight down. And I remember him dropping into this super steep section. And I just thought to myself, oh my God, I'm just out of my league here. <laughs> like, like, I can't do that. What am I doing here? Like, I, I shouldn't really be here. And it's like our skills were just, we were just starting to learn our skills back then. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just starting to learn it. So just starting to learn how snowboards really work under your feet then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you you both are talking about those like kind of nascent years of of snowboarding. What did the snowboard industry look like back then? To me, it was very fickle. (laughs) Mm. In what way? Uh, You know, I started out kind of got my start racing the Super G events, trying to get on the World Cup, and I'd gotten hurt, and um, my sponsor was the one that told me about the King of the Hill comp, and then everybody was stoked on this new big thing, and then within a year, year and a half, suddenly Big Mountain, or quote, extreme riding, Mm-hmm. is what it was then. It wasn't big mountain riding. was just a thing of the past. And that's not the direction the industry was going. And then everybody just wanted freestylers. That's how it always felt to me. They wanted the base of the board up in the air in the camera. And that's how they wanted their logos shown. So mm-hmm. the little pinpoint on the photo... The sponsors weren't into it and it it sort of waved back and forth for me yeah i'm going to tell this this story that that uh kind of nails that one 
And here's what it is, is it was back in, I think it was 96, probably when I went up to the trans world industry convention up in um, Banff and Jake Burton was sitting to my left, probably four or five people down. And the guy and the guy from ESPN got up and he talked and he said, hey, everybody, we're going to start this new thing called the X Games. And he explained it and he's talked about how it was going to happen. And I stood up and I said, hey, you know, if you're going to do this X Games, you're working off that word extreme from the X. Why don't you put big mountain snowboarding in it? Mm -hmm. And he goes, he goes, well, you know, we're holding it at Snow Summit. It has to be able to be all done at Snow Summit. And so I was like, hey, you know, if you do this, you could kill this side of the sport the big mountain riding side of the sport. And, you know, they didn't really care, you know, so um, it is what happened. They essentially took the word extreme, started the X games and kind of just took it all away. And at the same times, right around the same time, snowboarding half pipe got into the Olympics. And right at the same time, several of the sponsors that were sponsoring King of the Hill pulled out because their money had to go to half pipe riders instead. Hmm. And, you know, I was fortunate that I was in a good spot. I had won the King of the Hill and then I won the Verbier contest. And in Europe, what I was doing was a big deal. And so all of my sponsors came from Europe. Everyone it was Rossi, Fire and Ice, Swatch, um, God, who else was in there? Mm. Yeah, I had Nidecker yeah. and Killer Loop. Mine were European too. So is it safe to say that X Games took money away from King of the Hill? Yeah, I was. Yeah, because of the athletes. You know, the snowboard companies or, wanted their athletes in the Olympics and in X Games, you know, and they stopped caring about big mountain riding. You know, luckily I got in there just beforehand and I was able to get those some European sponsors that ended up lasting for a certain amount of time. But there was no money in the United States for big mountain riding at all. Why do you think that is? It wasn't cool. Then. I think that. My gosh. Yeah, it was. It wasn't cool. Like you couldn't find big mountain pictures in magazines. It was all about jibbing and only chip, only chip, what chip. you did in the x game in the x games is what it was about and there was a long time it was like that could you imagine if we were in our heyday now in the industry steve oh yeah a different world i'd like to say i'm probably the only three-time world champion that lives in affordable housing <laughs> you know what's interesting about that julie is that um and i i've talked about this a few times just with with a few snowboard buddies is that I think that cameras, uh, specifically GoPros and drones have really opened up big mountain snowboarding to viewers because before that you had a, a photographer or a filmer who was like across the way filming your line and to the viewer, you know, it doesn't look like anything because you can't really, you know, judge how steep something is from that far away. But once 
GoPro came out and then, you know, you have drones like following someone down a mountain, you can actually see as the viewer how steep that is. Yeah, definitely. The cameras, the technology and social media have changed it as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know that, you know, the industry, I didn't really understand it. So that was also part of my sponsorship issue. I wasn't out there riding to be sponsored, but I needed to be sponsored, you know, so it was sort of a little bit of a conundrum for me. And I wonder too, if social media had been around, either I, you know, had I been able to present myself the way I wanted to, I think that would have changed for me as well. Because once I started getting sponsored, they were asking all these things of me that I was like, I don't actually do that. So then they'd move to somebody else. You know, they just assumed if you're a snowboarder, oh, you must ride half pipe. You must hit big airs. And I'm like, well, no, but if you want to go run gates, border cross or big mountain, I'm your girl. <laughs> mm -hmm. You want to go fast, I'm your girl. Steve, you brought up that point of X Games kind of taking money away from King of the Hill. Do you think there was a point when sponsors gravitated toward X Games rather than King of the Hill, that there was this pivotal transition in snowboarding. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it all happened all in one fell swoop, and that's why King of the Hill stopped. Hmm. Yeah, you know, luckily the guys in Europe and Verbier were able to keep theirs going because um, they care about alpine environment over there. You know, in the States, we care more about freestyle and that's okay. You know, that everything has its place. Do you have any thoughts on that, Julie? You know, I didn't really know what was going on with the money. I was, as I was told back then, lived in my own little bubble. And I was always just focused on how I could always become a better snowboarder. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter to me if I was running gates or border cross the big mountain definitely turned out to have a I turned out to feel like I had a real connection to that at the same time it was a little out of grasp because I didn't have the cash flow to just go participate on my own and it's like I didn't get to go to Alaska to practice for my film parts I just had to get out of a heli that I may or may not have been able to see and try to crush it but I digress. But the X Games, um, for me, was a little different. I had gotten a call from Don Bostic. He was one of the guys starting it up. Um, and he asked me if I wanted to do the border cross. And then he told me how it'll, they're going to have these tabletops or gaps with pools of Mountain Dew with floaty alligators in them. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, I still remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in the house that I lived in, sitting on the kitchen counter, talking to him on the phone. And I was like, you know, Don, I'm going to have to think about that. Because coming from the ski racing background, that just seems so absurd to me. Mm-hmm. I was very focused and I didn't know how, I didn't understand like 
why would anybody even want to watch that? It sounds like a joke. And um, I de ended up declining. And for my personal career, because that was probably one of the years, those first two, three years of the X Games, I was probably in contention to win the border cross and had no idea that, you know, all the sponsors were going to be following that. Now, had I gone and performed in front of a camera on the X Games, you know, mm -hmm. things might have gone differently. I don't know. What was it like pointing it down a mountain in Thompson Pass? That always gets me, you know, when I, I'm very familiar with border cross. I'm very familiar with <laughs> going to a resort and going down this course, but I am not familiar with pointing it down a mountain in one of the gnarliest spots in the world. Steve, you want to go first on this one? Well, I mean... You're only pointing it to the point until you got to slow down. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I always like to try to ride fast and hit a lot of errors. That's what it was about. And I mean, one thing that was just so cool about King of the Hill and Verbier was that it, uh, it let me show off what I like to do my whole life. And then all of a sudden, here's this contest right in front of me where I get to show it. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, okay, we kind of had to learn how we, how to do it because it was a totally new thing. But if you're the type of person that had just been jumping cliffs since I was, you know, 10 years old, that was like my favorite thing to do. It was a, just a natural thing. How about you, Julie? For me, it was, I definitely wasn't jumping cliffs. I was barely jumping at all when I got into it. Um, so going fast was what I really loved. And the wide open space really seemed to resonate with me. You know, I could open it up and the perfect turn was kind of my, my goal, my whole snowboard career, you know, get that sensation of this incredible pow turn and I could get it uh, carving on those race boards too, I think is why I really enjoyed it. But the, the next time I think, oh, I could have drove the nose a little deeper. I could, you know, so the next turn I would go for the next one and then riding in Alaska, learning to feel the snow and all these awarenesses that I, I naturally had, and I probably only in the last five to 10 years have come to understand that more spiritual connection, mm -hmm. more metaphysical thing of connecting with the elements, because it got to the point after a number of years up there, the snow, I mean, the snow everywhere, it speaks to me through my board and my feet. And it's, uh, it's pretty amazing sensation but the other thing for me was i was always so scared <laughs> so I, I was afraid of heights so flying in the heli could be scary and i i kind of adjusted to that but lz's and standing at the top of a mountain <laughs> mm -hmm. i was a basket case or crying more than once 
and I would have to sort of gather myself and I'd have to get my board on. Once my feet were buckled in, I felt way more comfortable. And by the second turn, I forgot all about the fear and it was just pure joy and elation, you know, assuming that I, assuming that nothing bad was happening, but the whole multi-conditional awareness of watching the snow behind you, just everything happening so fast. It all just seemed really natural to me once I was out there. And I don't know, got lucky. Still here to talk about it. What drove you to to pursue something like big mountain snowboarding when you were afraid of heights? I mean, it's all about heights. <laughs> <laughs> Julie's a it competitor, man. Un- she she's a she's a pretty strong competitor and competitive, you know. And we had this quote that we ha- went back and forth with between Julie and I back then. It was from Theodore Roosevelt, and it went like this: It went um, far better. Do you have it? To- I just read it. Sorry, go ahead. Did you? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, far you read better it. To- Okay. No, I don't have it in front of me. I'm just going to guess it. Oh, Far I better... actually left it here. I was thinking this might come up, so I left it in front of me. Okay, so do you uh, have it in front of you? Go ahead and say it. I might get it wrong. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much, because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. That's a great quote. I still go back to that one these days, for sure. Same. In what situations do you two go back to it now? I go back to it when I have competed in Verbier in the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. for sure. (laughs) And I guess I, you know, there's this interesting thing about a part of snowboarding where some people are like, oh man, you know, I just want to be mellow and just cruise around. It's like, okay, that's cool and all. But, you know, I look at myself and I'm a competitor, man. I, I like being a competitor. I like being a competitor in business and sports. And I like putting myself in that arena and testing myself, mm-hmm. you know, and it's still why I still have liked to do verbier until just recently, you know, and, um, that quote pretty much sums it up. You know, you got to get in the arena to to feel alive, in my opinion. Julie? Well, I, at the stage of my life that I'm in right now, I'm in this extra long transition trying to move into whatever's next. And I try to remind myself I uh, got tangled up definitely for quite a long time with some unfortunate and bad things happening in my life or around my life, loss of family members, divorce. And I definitely lost a lot of my willingness to put it out there. I got Mm -hmm. just hammered down one too many times, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And 
I succumbed to a pretty average type of employment, not very fulfilling, but I started working at the airport. Great job. I love working with people. It gave me the freedom since I didn't uh, really have anything else for my son and I to travel still and get out and about. And it didn't take long when I got the job. I was like, wow, this is what people live for decades. Like I really had to kind of accept a level of mediocrity in myself to do the job that they wanted me to do, not the job that I could see could be done. You know that, and I don't know if it's always competitive. I'm just sort of a uh, insatiable learner and efficiency nut. Like how can I make this work more smoothly? How can I make this turn feel better? How can I get more pressure in that carve? How can I make these people happier? Like it doesn't matter what I'm doing, that that's kind of, I'm always looking how to make it better. So a job like that, you just have to be sort of this puppet that they want you to be. I get my joy out of it where I can dealing with the people, but I've had to remind myself as my son got older, well, okay, he's heard about all these great things that I've done. What's my next great thing? Mm -hmm. You learn, kids learn what they live. They don't learn from stories. You know, he doesn't learn from where my life uh, had been at for quite some time. So as I've been working on making the, making those changes and trying to find this next new big thing or whatever it is big for me, because that's just kind of the way I am. I'm also trying to teach my son to let it, let it go. You know, my reservations, I can see how they have affected him and I've been trying to teach him from that quote. He actually rode, Steve, you're going to love this. So the snowboard that I, I had it written on that I won the King of the Hill on. Yeah. And I had it written up around the tip and the tail. Well, yeah, last year, Ronan took that board out and rode it and actually raced Dick's Ditch and won on that board. Wow. A board awesome. that's older than him. <laughs> that's great yeah awesome you know what's what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of king of the hill first thing rowdy <laughs> yeah i i had similar adjectives going through my mind whoa yeah, it was just a wild time really wild time raw like kind of the edge of the earth, um, lawless. Oh, that's a good one. And Julie, to kind of connect this with what you were just talking about is something that I, I feel like I understand kind of by proxy, you know, being around my, my dad and my uncle Jay and always 
having heard about these these crazy times of you know early borderline and king of the hill and then those times are gone and then now you're just kind of left with you know something that's a little bit more domestic <laughs> and, and i don't think there's anything wrong with that at all you know i mean i i am familiar with with domesticity i i'm living in domesticity right now <laughs> you know <laughs> so um when you think about those those old times i don't know how, how do you like reconcile them with kind of where you are now i mean especially when you're talking to your son ronan I mean, it was a really amazing lifestyle, and I, I, it all just happened. I'd say it happened so fast, but it was a lifetime in the making. Growing up a competitor and finding, you know, finding the tool that really suited how I felt. Um, it's. Often, I can't even believe what I did in the mountains. Mm -hmm. I I don't backcountry ski partially because I never really got the experience and knowledge during my the height of my career because I was so busy competing in any event I could find or traveling or filming that I was never here when my friends, you know, started going a little deeper and getting more out into the mountains and partially because it just scared me. It, you know, if you have an incident when you're in a film crew with a heli, it flies in and you have a whole crew to help you through the incident. Mm -hmm. And those usually turn out okay. And you have an incident in the backcountry, they don't always turn out okay. Yeah, here's um, another thing I can say in regards to that. I, I stopped filming back in the mid-90s because too many people were getting hurt and dying when I would go film. I liked going to contests. They would they would you know secure the face a lot of times and make sure that stuff wouldn't slide whether it was verbier or king of the hill and um people weren't i mean, they were putting yourself out there but it was seemed to be a little bit more controlled than when i was filming i was with miles burgett who i in my opinion was one of the best riders that ever competed in king of the hill and miles hit his head on a rock when we were filming and then, you know, I just was talking about him earlier today and same with Gilles Waro from Switzerland died from hitting his head on a rock while filming. Mm. And I just got, I personally got a, just, I don't know. I just didn't want to film anymore because it happened too many times in a row for me. And so, um, I just focused on the contests at that point. Yeah. You know, before we got on this call, I decided I would try to refresh myself a little about the King of the Hill. I have this giant book that my father put together and labeled and organized by year, uh, a lot of articles and photos from different magazines. 
So when I was reading all these old articles, I found a paragraph, and you've got to think this was probably in 96 or 97. Um, 97. It was definitely 97 because I was speaking to the fact that Miles was in a coma, Trevor Peterson had just been killed, and my brother had just been paralyzed in a oh. accident, paragliding accident. So that season was pretty heavy on me, just wondering what, why am I out here doing this? And I was terrified of mistakes. And you can't really be terrified of mistakes. You know, you got to be calculated and make your best judgments, mm -hmm. um, educated judgments. I guess the thing I had going for me is that I always knew no matter your best judgment and education, Mother Nature will decide when she's going to do her worst, you know? Mm -hmm. Was there a point when either of you really started considering your own mortality? That was probably my year. I think I had always thought about it, but after my brother's accident, I kind of felt like, why am I out here doing this? He's the one that sort of led me into the mountains. He was so much more talented and knowing I started feeling like I didn't have much business actually being there. Mm -hmm. How about you, Steve? You know, I think every time you step in the starting gate, you consider it on those mm -hmm. types of events because like, I think that's what's so unique about King of the Hill and Verbier is that, you know, you can, if you fall in the wrong spot, it is possible that you die or you land on rocks and things like that. And there are, some sports that are like that. So yeah, I mean, definitely considering my own mortality. I mean, I did the Verbier contest two years ago. They invite, they gave me a wild card for that. I was stoked to do that mm -hmm. this year. You know, I was thinking of going over there, but because of COVID, I'm not going to go over there, but I definitely have been thinking about my own mortality mm -hmm. and it's like, do I really want to put myself out there again right now? I don't know. I don't know if I want to do it still. You know, it's uh, you definitely wrestle with that one because it's very possible something's going to happen. And that, you know, that question, it really separates this event from these really steep mountain free ride events from other snowboard events. Mm -hmm. It's just becomes a totally different realm of what you're doing. So. Yeah, that's it. You know, when I talk to people about King of the Hill, both competitors and the partiers, they say that you two were more serious about the competitor aspect of the event. Does that sound about right? Or do you feel like you were out there partying as hard as like Richie Fowler and Sean Farmer? <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> Not even. Yeah. Not even yeah. a fraction, except yeah, for when not... the contest was over. But really, alcohol was my only, was probably the only place that I 
had more than my fair share. I wasn't really into the other stuff. You're saying that you weren't into shooting holes through the walls of hotels? No. <laughs> Have you heard that story? I've heard lots of stories. I could never muddle through which ones were real and which ones were... Uh, what's the word? Elaborated upon? <laughs> what stories come to mind when you think of King of the Hill? I remember Sean Farmer jumping off a, about a 60-foot cliff to flat and... Yeah, I talked to him about that years later, and he said I he said he was injured for two years after that. I mean, he landed like right on his side. I remember that. Oh. I remember. I remember. Um, I remember uh, Dave Bryson, super strong competitor, doing a lot of things. I remember Steve Graham when he did this one line that wasn't dangerous, but he aired the cornice off the top, then hit this other rock. And there was nothing exposed about his line. No, no, like, you know, fall, you die zones, but he got a really high score. And I remember that like kind of changed my view of like what you wanted to do in a line, because here's the thing you could put yourself in a position and scare the bejeebers out of yourself. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that you got to know is that the judges have no idea how afraid you are. Because sometimes people get to the bottom and because they're so afraid, they thought they should get a high score or something like that. But the judges have no idea how afraid you are. So my strategy changed after seeing Graham do that. And it was more like, OK, I'm not going to put myself in a scary situation. I'm just going to be more in controlled situations. Well, and I do want to talk about the party inside because... You know, there was a group of guys that were super into the the hardcore party inside. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, I saw what was going down there and, you know, I was and you can edit this if you want, because it's something that I've, I've never really told anybody, but it had something to do with why I felt the way that I did about that whole scene. And, and here's what it was, is that. I had a background coming from college where I was a track and field athlete. I was a, I was a pole vaulter and there was times when I was pretty good at it, where I would go to different track meets around the country and I would travel and it was me and five black guys and one black coach. One guy was black guy was a coach. And so I would be the only white guy traveling with, six black guys and it, it was cool. And it was, you know, I got to know a lot about what those guys feel are acceptable is acceptable and what's not. And when I went up there, there was a black guy up there and his name was Pete. And I got along good with Pete and a lot of other guys got along good with Pete, but there was some, there was definitely some like, uh, racially tinged language and things like that that was going on that I did not feel comfortable with at all. Mm -hmm. And and because of that and because I was already on probation at that time, I was already in <laughs> trouble with the law and I could not get in trouble for any type of drug-related thing. And so those two things kept me away from that group 
And I'm just going to straight up say it right now, 30 years later. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you, did you know that that's what was going on at the time? Because I know that as as we get older, we can reflect on certain things and be like, I was uncomfortable in that situation. And then now you can articulate it. Or were you able to articulate it back then? Well, I mean, put it this way, there, the guys that were up there did not come from a background where they hung around a lot of black guys. They didn't. You know, there was, remember, it was early 90s. So you're coming out of the late 80s. There's a whole hip hop thing going. So and rap was just coming on back then. And so there was this kind of, you know, gangster rap type of thing vibe going, but it didn't fly with the dudes that I knew how the, how those guys were acting. And so I couldn't really put myself into that position and feel comfortable with it. Well, I can speak to that total naivety part on my side. I had no idea what was going on. I just saw behavior that seemed totally OC to me. OC? Out of control. Okay. Oh, sorry. Sometimes I'm still in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was, again, the ski race background. Everything was very refined. It was very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? square i guess you could say so i just didn't understand this i'm like what in god's name does that have to do with snowboarding mm -hmm. and the mountains and riding pow i don't get it um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean and, and and also i mean i was really into the grateful dead back then and those guys <laughs> weren't into the grateful dead i was into psychedelics they were into other stuff like cocaine and heroin yeah, you Apparently. Know, and, and I know that that stuff was going down there and I did not want to be in the room when that stuff was going down. Yeah. So I had no idea that stuff was going down. Um, I didn't know that a lot of the pros were deep into the coke until we're talking like early 2000, one of my last trips. And one of my friends mm -hmm. turns out was a dealer and she told me all the stories from back around the King of the Hill. And I was like, what? I had no idea that stuff was th th all kinds of things. I don't really remember, but I just remember being mind blown that I could be in the same room with so many people and have zero awareness of what was going down. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, and maybe you can't, if my son's ever going to listen to this, maybe by the time he's 25, it's okay. But I did, uh, so the first year of the King of the Hill, I had absolutely no clue that I might have won. And somebody gave me a mushroom chocolate. And I was in the some other room drinking a beer, and I just put the chocolate in my mouth. I'd probably maybe eating half of it. And somebody's like, Julie, where are you? They're calling your name. Julie, where <laughs> are you? And somebody came down the hall, Zell. 
they're calling your name. You won. I was like, what? And I spit out the chocolate. And then, of course, people who like drugs are like, give me that. I'm like, really? I've been sucking on this thing. <laughs> anyway, so I, I went down and got on stage. And while I'm on stage getting a robe put on and being, that was the first year when everybody had the garb on, right? Mm-hmm those mushrooms started kicking in and I was like, what the fuck is happening <laughs> up here? <laughs> so had I had any idea that I had won, I wouldn't have even considered it because it wasn't even something that I did even on a semi-regular basis. It was at that point in my life, I'd probably done mushrooms like four or five times. You know, Steve, you had mentioned this about the racially tinged language and then the, you know, the drugs that were involved in King of the Hill. I wonder if there is an intersection between some of the more backward or dirtbag behavior at King of the Hill and the type of people that Alaska draws in. And I, I've said this before in articles, I may have mentioned it on the podcast before, but I, I truly believe that, Alaska is filled with escapists and people that are born there. I'll jump in. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, that's kind of what I felt like when I got there, that it was people that lived there and then people that just wanted to go be lawless. Mm. be, Or they came up there for that competition and they felt like they could just do any old thing they wanted to. That was one really cool part about it. <laughs> there was a lot of freedom <laughs> to do whatever you wanted to do. That's for sure. And you just kind of fell into the group that was your group, you know, that you hung out with, that you vibed with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Richie and Sean, they were the guys on the far end of that spectrum. I mean, the the event wouldn't have been what it was without those guys. So, I mean, <laughs> God bless them for doing what they did because it it's like they took the wild side of snowboarding and combined it with doing whatever the hell they wanted to. And it was awesome. You know, it was an awesome part for the culture and the whole deal. I just really, it just wasn't my personality to be in the group like that. And there's probably some elements of that that, even for me, helped shape, take a little piece of what they, I'm having a hard time kind of putting it towards, um, it was like, take a little piece of that wildness, and it opened me up. It's like, wow, I I could act in a way that I think is wild. Nobody's even going to notice. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So in some ways, it still benefited me because it helped open me up. I was very, very closed off. Grew up very, holding everything very tight to the vest, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, and and the more that I have, like, meditated on this this podcast series and thought about King of the Hill because I wasn't 
old enough to be there. I wasn't old enough to like go to King of the Hill and compete. But what I was old uh, old enough to be able to do was travel around Anchorage with my dad, picking up all of the kind of accessories and the stuff that that made up King of the Hill. So the alcohol, the thrones at Dooley's in Anchorage, and the uh, you know the king and the the queen like outfits. And so how I've come to understand this event is it was emblematic of the industry back then or or the people that snowboarding attracted, which were kind of these, it was very similar to skateboarding yeah. where it kind of attracted these, these outcasts and these people that maybe didn't fit in anywhere else. You know, they weren't into soccer or hockey or... <laughs> you know, or baseball, maybe a little bit of hockey with the fighting, but other than that, you know, <laughs> they were attracted to maybe a little bit of the, the criminality of life. Yeah. I think that's the snow, that's the snowboarding culture from the early days. I mean, it was lawless. Yeah. You weren't allowed on the ma- on the mountains, on the ski mountains. So, you know, we just started like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of us still remembered that in those days you know, that lawlessness side of it. And it was cool. You know, you just got to, you had to, I had to just watch myself up there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like one of those situations where, you know, you, the universal, you not, not you specifically, but like you think that you're hard and then you're around somebody who's actually kind of (laughs) hard and you're like, Oh shit. Like I'm kind of (laughs) soft. Yeah. Yeah, those guys partied at a different level. Yeah. For sure. So both of you got first place in King of the Hill. Yes. 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 Yeah, we both won. She won three times, I think, and I won twice. Is that right, Julie? Three times? Yeah. Because we we were twice together on the throne. Yep. When you're watching and competing in a contest like King of the Hill... And seeing the lines being thrown down, are you thinking, I just need to keep it within my comfort zone? Or are you thinking, I need to step outside of my comfort zone? A fish can't whistle and neither can I. <laughs> right, Steve? Yeah, you got to know what your limitations are. And Steve and I would read the Tao of Pooh in the parking lot while we'd be on aggressive hold. Yeah, that was before we had cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the quotes, we were both uh, minorly injured. And one of the quotes that we thrived on and I think got us back on the throne was, a fish can't whistle and neither can I, which means you have to know your limitations so you can work around them or within them and it helps you know also your strengths and work towards those mm-hmm. and it's something that I tell my son all the time at those free ride comps also is don't ever worry what anyone else out there is doing on the mountain you're never going to win a free ride comp on their line You know, it's back to that. We touched on the spirituality thing a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
the mountain speaks to everyone differently. And when you can tune into it, you don't have to have the gnarliest line. Like Steve was talking about, um, who was that? Steve Graham. Yep. You don't have to have all these huge airs. Maybe you have a lot more smaller airs and things that are stompable for you and fluidity. And I just, for me, I tried to never concern myself with what the other competitors were doing because I was losing before I left the gate if I did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really, even to this day of doing verbier um it's a personal test it's a personal competition against myself maybe back then it wasn't but for the last 15 years it has been mm-hmm. <laughs> see where i'm at because i've i've continued to keep on doing it <laughs> yeah I didn't, I didn't stop you know and so i always ask myself when that last time is going to be and you know, even though I'm not going to do it this year because of COVID, I'm I'm not going to say that I'm done yet. Well, you keep inspiring me every once in a while. I'm like, oh, maybe I should talk to Nicholas. At least the girls go over on the little back now. Yeah. But I don't well, even ride anything steep anymore. I wouldn't know, know what to do with my first turn. What do you think is the the difference between you two at this point because there must have been a point where there was some divergence you know steve you're you're still doing it uh julie you you still snowboard but you're not competing in the same way i'll tell you what it is i mean when king of the hill stopped verbier became the premier event in the world and I just am totally addicted to that feeling of thinking about doing my run and the run I want to imagine doing and, you know, and putting myself into that arena. It's like I've been doing it for 25 years now and part of me wants to stop, but I don't know how to stop thinking about it like that. It's just, I'm I'm totally obsessed with that Beck de Ross mountain. Well, that's exactly pretty much or what that reminded me of was when Julie said earlier, when she's talking about that turn, you know, that, that first turn or that, that perfect turn, you know, it's just the chase. That's what drove me. Just the sensation, you know, and I've been teaching snowboarding for almost as long as I've known how, and It's one of the things I talk to people about. I have a totally different style of teaching than I used to. And I just tell people, you got to get these basics. And then it's all about the sensation. Mm -hmm. The most amazing part, snowboarding and skiing, it doesn't matter if it's your first day and your very first turn or your one millionth turn, you can pull the same amount of joy from it. And for me the level of joy has dropped. I, I actually feel like I'm a better, technically better snowboarder than I used to be. Mm-hmm. I have uh, understanding of how the board is working and my body and the feet that I didn't have then. Back then it was more muscle and willpower. 
and skill. Mm-hmm. But there's a process. I still love to ride, but there's a process of the going to the mountain that's become really difficult for me. And that's one of the only reasons. I don't know if I lived at the base of the mountain. It would be different. But um, it's one of the reasons that I'm not riding as much. I have competed in a race here the last couple of years, the Dick Stitch Bank Slalom. And it's fun to get in the gate. And I really do it to try to train myself out of being a competitor. Mm-hmm. My goal is to ride the course without feeling like I'm in a competition. So I'm trying to go in the opposite. I get why Steve yeah. can't quit. If I was obsessed with the Bechteros, I might feel the same way, but the Bechteros always terrified me. Okay, so I'm 56 years old now. I'm still obsessed with the Bechteros. <laughs> and, you know, here here's what I realized 25 years ago when I did that first contest there and it comes, it just came on the heels of King of the Hill is that getting in the starting gate in a free ride comp, whether it was in Alaska or Verbier, it was the ultimate rush that I had found on the snowboard, you know, for my whole life, I'd done a lot of things, half pipe contests, whatever. This was the ultimate rush. And it was because it was in a competitive format and you were judged and the crowd was there and there was a lot on the line and you could possibly get hurt really bad and all those elements together, man, if you get to the bottom and you have, you're on your feet, you're like, fucking a man, that was great. (laughs) You know, and I couldn't compare it to anything else. So I was just, I'm always chasing that dragon man of that ultimate rush. But here's one thing I noticed this year. I, I made the decision about probably a week and a half ago that, I couldn't justify doing Verbier, okay? I couldn't justify getting on an airplane and going over there and doing the quarantine and the whole thing. I couldn't justify it for a run, Mm -hmm. to just do a run because it just didn't seem right with everything going on. And so, but since then, man, I have been, it's felt like a death, like somebody that I know close to me has died, you know, and I, I, I had a really hard time just even enjoying myself snowboarding because at this time I'm usually like getting ready and going for it and like, okay, I got to push it and I got to, you know, get myself ready. Mm -hmm. And this year I'm like, I don't got to get myself ready. (laughs) And and it's like, okay, well then what am I doing? And it's kind of, it's, it's, I'm enjoying it and I'm finding joy in my riding, but that intensity and that drive is just, isn't there. And I'm missing it a lot, you know? So that's where I'm at with it right now. Yeah. I kind of miss that intensity, but at the same time, my body just can't, it can't handle the, the bangs anymore. I'm pretty beat up. I can barely stand on my feet some mornings. Yeah. And I know I'm, in an interesting place that they're still letting me do that contest. And I'm in my fifties, you know, it's i uh, I'm a really in a really unique spot. Well, maybe next year you and I can do a exhibition run instead. Yeah. Something like that would be cool. <laughs> I would love to see that. 
you know, I would rather, I think I'd feel more comfortable doing that than trying sure to compete. We, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and I'm starting to let that go. I, I'm ready to let that go. Even though I still have a line in my head that I want to do that I haven't done yet there, you know, and I have, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a 25 year obsession. I can't stop thinking about it, you know, but I guess I'm going to have to. So. <laughs> Do either of you remember the first line that you did in King of the Hill? I have a pretty good recollection. It was school bus the first year, right? I can't remember. I think the first year was school bus. And I mean, mine was, I was always looking for the best snow and the cleanest line. I didn't like being overly exposed and if I could find air, if I could find small airs that were in my way, so to speak, I didn't like cliff drops. I didn't, that whole fear heights thing, the cliff drop, I'd get this wicked vertigo when you're just sort of dropping. Mine had to be floaty and sort of on the way to where I was trying to go. I was very much a fall line girl. How about you, Steve? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I remember a, a couple runs there at King of the Hill, uh, but the very first one, I what I remember from the very first World Extreme Snowboarding Championship was Griber dropping in and then thinking that I was just out of my league. Um, my first run at King of the Hill, at school bus, I don't remember it. I don't. That was the year that... Goodwill won. Yeah. And then I think the next year was it on Billy Mitchell or Happy Top or something? I, I do remember the Billy Mitchell run. I don't remember the school bus run. I remember Billy Mitchell. I remember that being the, it was 4,000 vertical feet that the run was. The judged run was on 4,000 vertical feet. I think that's the longest free ride competition run that there's ever been. And the judges were like two miles away. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. I remember how long that run was. I do. Yeah. Now that you have some distance from King of the Hill, I guess specifically, you know, what do you think of that 4,000 vertical feet run? And then, you know, what do you think of the competition compared to other competitions? Well, I, I guess the one thing that is great about Verbier is you can have 5,000 people there watching it. And it's just uh, an amazing venue, amazing steep venue. Um, good for in the Alaska, sport. Yeah, really good for the sport like that. You know, in Alaska, it was amazing venues, but there was no spectators, <laughs> nobody watching. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and that was cool and all, but there is something to be said when you have a big street fair for a couple of days along with the contest and, you know, people can take trams from multiple directions and be there to watch it. Um, you know, it, it definitely gives something to the contest to have that whole scene and social scene around it. Mm -hmm. I think the format of the King of the Hill though, really, really epitomizes the, the 
all the different aspects of snowboarding, though, that if you love to ride and you're a pro, I think speed and freestyle and it doesn't, you know, it's not, maybe you're not the trickiest, but you're, you've got your handful of tricks in your bag and then extremes. I think it just sort of epitomizes, for me, it epitomizes everything that's awesome about snowboarding, skiing too, really. But I, I thought it was an amazing contest format. But maybe then again, I felt that way because it was like it was custom built for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was an awesome format, too. I mean, it really showcased different skills and it kept it unique for each day. Each day was different and I thought it was awesome. I wish it was still going on. And you didn't always know who was going to where it was going to shake out at the end of the week, because somebody that might be great at freestyle, they might not be so great at doing 50 down a 4000 vert hill over hills and valleys and gullies and so forth you know or maybe that low angle stuff and the speed and the freestyle is good but they didn't really know how to carry themselves down a 50 degree pitch so or vice versa so you didn't really know how it was going to shake out i never thought i was going to keep winning i just did I feel like the the snowboard industry back in those King of the Hill days for men and for women were two very different experiences. How do you think it was different for a woman in the snowboard industry in the 90s than it was for your male counterparts? Well, let Steve. her go. Oh, <laughs> get ready for this one. We can make it pretty simple. Verbier. Steve, the very first year, Steve won 10 grand and I got, it was two or three. I don't remember exactly what it was, but not only that, the second place guy got five grand. So second place got more than the first place woman. Third place got three grand. Third place woman got a basket with chocolates and a bottle of wine. Really? She was so pissed. So there's that just right there. And that was the discrepancy for a pretty much across the board for all prize monies. And the sponsors were really into the guys. And one of the things uh, that was pretty obvious if you were going to film or trying to get on a team. I I have this kind of saying because I've thought that it would be great as a movie or a book, but there's only there was only room for one. Only room for one. There was only room for one female on a team. There was only room. This was my experience. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of the freestylers had it different, but there was only room for one female in the heli. There was only room for one female. Sometimes in the magazines, there wouldn't be too many. It was very rare you'd see a female on the cover. I never was on the cover of an American magazine. 
as a big mountain free rider and a female. Mm-hmm. And then there was only room for one in the movie. And the money, the big argument with the sponsors was always, well, there's not as many women buying gear. There's not as many women. It's like, well, if you're not marketing to them, why would they think that it's a sport for them? Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like I could have been a huge advocate for women in the sport and a huge asset financially had one company listened to me in the nineties because now here we're there, we're there and there's a lot more women out. There still doesn't seem to be as many, but that's just the nature of the sport or something. I don't know, but there's tons of women out there skiing and I just don't even see that many, as many people snowboarding in general. So when you think about your, your experience from those King of the Hill days. And then now you have today to compare it to, I mean, what, what kinds of things come to mind? Well, no offense to most or many of the guys that I was out there with, but there was really very little respect you know, not somebody like Steve. There was people who respected what you were doing in the mountains. And then a lot of the guys who wanted you to just tag along or follow. Like if you had to be in the heli with them or had to be on the photo shoot. I mean, it was it was pretty weird. I didn't always have the best experiences because then there's parts where I had a filmmaker try to make a move on me in a hotel room. I thought that was the one guy that might be safe to share the room with instead of the athletes that I didn't know. Boy, was I wrong. We got to our next stop and I ran over to these guys' room and I knocked on the door and I said, hey, can, I don't even, because I didn't know these two guys. And I said, can I share the room with you guys because... I can't be in this dude's room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to leave them nameless because I'm not trying to, you know, harm anybody's life. And that was probably just all part of the rock and roll party scene. So just so I understand this, this guy made a move and you kind of escaped the situation by going to another room knocking on the door of another room well no so we were we were moving from location to location so the first night was when we were all gathering up and then we were getting in the heli and the support vehicles and moving to the next location the next day Mm -hmm. and you know that night i'm like in bed watching tv figured i'm pretty safe in this hotel room with this guy and next thing I know, he's standing next to my bed in his underwear, touching my arm. And I'm like, ah, uh, I, you know, nothing happened. And I, I think, I think my guardian angels, however I responded, 
and deflected the situation without making a scene and without having a problem, I was able to do that. And then the next night, as soon as we pulled into the parking lot of the next hotel, I jumped out of the car and ran over to two of the guys on the trip and was like, hey. <laughs> and then when I told them, sort of inadvertently what was going on, they go, oh, we thought you were one of those pro-hoes. And I said, what? You mean women, there's girls out there that actually do that? <laughs> and how old were you at this point? Um, I was probably 29-ish. Okay. I mean, there was ways that the world I was just totally naive to. I had no idea. Do you feel like the industry is better now? Sure seems like it right down to some of the film crews that I was with more often. They got more women in their films and women writing together. It seems like the women who are doing well are actually, I mean, I really don't have any idea how they're being compensated financially, but I'm seeing a lot more um, camaraderie among the women. Mm -hmm. I don't, feel like they're being pitted against each other and again i maybe it was the free ride side that seemed more like that when i was racing we were all very uh in support of each other mm -hmm. there wasn't like some weird rift between us because of sponsors and not a room our competition was on the course and that was the end of it and then in the free ride stuff it just it was very limited for the females. The sponsors, a lot of them wouldn't even consider a big mountain rider. I bounced from sponsor to sponsor. I can't even tell you how many sponsors I had. If I were to make a list, I, and it's not because I had a bunch of sponsors at once. It's because either the company would go out of business. I'd get a company that was super, I had a couple of companies that were super stoked, but then the industry again was so fickle. Their big mountain stuff like Arbor and winter stick, both sponsors at one point, but with the way the industry was going, they were, they were struggling to keep people on their teams and keep making boards for a while there. Mm -hmm. I like to see that they've both made a strong comeback with the, free ride really getting a big boost if you could create or maybe explain a perfect world scenario where there's kind of male and female equality in snowboarding what would that look like i'm guessing that julie would say equal prize money you know, and when wow. I look back on the contest through the years, that's what the women that felt like it wasn't equal have asked for. That's when I stopped getting invited to Verbier because I wrote them. A, I finally wrote a letter on the, after the fourth year, sort of in support of myself and the women, and I never got invited back. Maybe I didn't write it that eloquently, but... Um, Equal prize money for sure, which is happening in some places. You know, they just did 
this big contest here in Jackson, Kings and Queens of Corbett's. Slightly a knockoff of the King of the Hill, right? Have you heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they just, it just went off last week. I watched it yesterday or today, yesterday on Red Bull TV, and they had equal prize money. And it's a substantially different um, level that the women were able to accomplish this year versus the men. I mean, the man's body's just built different. But my thing was, no, but there's no man that was working harder than me. Maybe he's stronger. Maybe he's ballsier or dumber. It's hard to say which one is which sometimes. <laughs> But there was nobody working harder than me. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I was the hardest working. I'm saying, like, Steve and I are out there competing. We're working equally hard. We both are equally at risk. Why is he getting $10,000 and I'm getting two? And that's one big thing. But across the board, clothing, equipment, advertising, I'm seeing a lot more geared towards women, but it's still, the men are running the show in a lot of areas. Can I talk about something that, on you know, I was at a unique perspective being a competitor and then also owning a snowboard shop in the industry when it was going down in the mid nineties and into the early two thousands. And it was really unfair to Julie and the other big mountain pro girls who were really good, whether it was uh, Ruth Lezibah or Geraldine Fastnatch or, you know, any of the, the early girls, because what would have happened is that they were better big mountain riders than the girls that were out there filming and taking photos they just were you know i saw it i hung out with them and saw it and it's like those other girls had their gig entrenched with the filmers and the photographers and they just went out and made nice powder turns and that's all that the companies really cared about it seemed like was you know pretty girl they making a powder turn and and it was uh and it was really unfair to the girls that were the good ones in the sport because they didn't get recognized. The other girls got recognized and it went on for a long time too. So I just got to come out and say that. Thank you. I appreciate that. It yeah. was pretty, it was pretty hard to be on the other side of that. Yeah. It had to be really frustrating because you couldn't get the film spot. You couldn't get with the good photographers because they were already taken up by making pretty powder turns. And Cody, some of that is because of what those guys said to me on that trip. Mm -hmm. Some of them were pro hoes and that's how they had the photographer. They had the photographer. I didn't know this was going on and this is just what I, you know, sort of found out through the stage of my career. And I'm like, well, the hell if, I'm going to go that route just to get a photo in a magazine or they should be taking my picture because I'm good at it. Not because I'm going to sleep with them. Yeah, absolutely. It's really true too. Unfortunately. Julie, I wonder what it was like 
as a snowboarder, you got into snowboarding because it's this thing that you're attracted to, just like all of us that are into snowboarding. And then all of a sudden you realize that you're in this environment, this atmosphere that doesn't look at you the same as they do other people, you know, their, their male counterparts. Do you remember that moment? Was there a moment that, that you recognize that? You know, it was, it was every day. And I, I think I survived because so I'm the youngest of eight and I had five older brothers and I, part of, I think why I ended up snowboarding because the whole ski racing thing, a, I couldn't quite ever seem to get the break that I was hoping for trying to make it to the Olympics and stuff. When I moved to Jackson hole, I felt very much in the shadow of my brothers. They were very notorious skiers when I got here. And the other thing, when I put that snowboard on, it was like all those voices in my head every time I tried to make a turn disappear. Mm -hmm. So then when I get out in the mountains, here's an example. I'm out filming. We spent thousands of dollars moving a fuel stash way out into the mountains. This was in Canada by airplane. We went out and did all this recon, paid for all this fuel to go out there. And then when we went out the next day, there had been a huge wind event and scoured everything. And I said, well, why don't we go find some low angle pow somewhere protected build a kicker till we figure out what to do because there was a lot of money on the line right mm -hmm. and back then thousands of dollars was you know massive in the mid 90s so the one guy actually looks at me and he goes that's the stupidest thing i ever heard and i was like okay we go and we land in this little kind of hole. I'm sitting in the heli eating my lunch because all the dudes are over there having theirs. And the pilot's sitting in his seat and we're kind of chatting. And then this same guy says to everybody there, why don't we go find some place to build a kicker and go session it? And the pilot looked right at me because he had heard the whole conversation before. And I just smiled and shook my head at him. And I was like, welcome to my life. Mm -hmm. And that's just sort of a idea of how it went for me. You know, hey, I'm going to go hit that line. We're not filming over there yet, Julie. We're doing this side. And then so... I come down that side and that guy goes over and hits the line that I was going to hit. I mean, it was just endless. It was endless. Yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> I'm grateful for all of my experiences. I'm grateful that there was part of me that knew even being very much in my bubble and somewhat unaware of 
the world outside of me. There was part of me that always knew to embrace the experience I was having, even though I always felt a little unfulfilled and couldn't quite get what I wanted. I really appreciate your honesty, Julie. I, my mom, the wife of, of Scott Liska with borderline and just all the craziness that came with that. She was the same way. You know, she, she would suggest things and people would be like, Oh yeah. Okay. You know, nice, you know, wife of Scott Liska or whatever. Right. And then, and then somebody would, you know, a guy would suggest it and like, Oh my God, that's a great idea. And then, you know, and then, and then me being a child in, you know, in those moments, I'd be like, wait, she just, cause you know, children are, you know, they're, they're usually pretty untainted by, I guess the, you know, those worldly. Yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. And, and I, and I'd recognize it and I'd be like, wait, that's, that's what she just suggested. Now I want you, I want to make sure that that was not everybody. It was a large percent. And as the years went on, I became really, it, the industry also became more difficult for me because to keep myself safe, I got really picky about, and I just don't, I don't mean just physically safe, but emotionally safe. I started getting inadvertently choosy about who I was getting in a heli with. And you can only put your best ideas out there so long and have somebody uh, basically steal them from you. It's not stealing because a lot of them are so unaware they didn't even realize, oh, Julie's just said that six months ago and now we're doing it. <laughs> but there was people that I loved flying with, people that I loved being in the mountains with. I felt good about, we communicated well, it was equal. So there were some, what do you call it now? Early adapters. There's some, some guys that were early adapters to uh, equal rights for women in the mountains. <laughs> Steve was one of them. Yeah, well, I, and I remember you guys coming to me, some of the girls come to you, whether it's you or Carlene Barlia, you know, or I'll even say Gibbs. I'll throw her name out there just because. Right. And, and, uh, and uh, you would be like, Steve, you got to tell those guys that we should get the same prize money. And I was just like, okay, whatever you girls say, I'm on your side. Because <laughs> <And that's, laughs> I did not want to be on the, I did not want to be on all the girls' side. So, but I do agree with it too. So. But yeah, but I just wanted to be in Julie's <laughs> club. I mean, she won Queen of the Hill and I think I got third the first year when she won it. And I was like, man, this Zell girl, she's really good. I just kind of want to be in her club, whatever it was. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been buddies ever since. We have been. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes we kept each other safe at those parties. Not to drift back to the party thing after all that other talk, but yeah, we'd kind of hide out together. Yeah, sometimes we would, because it would get a little rough. And same like in Verbier too. 
The shit's you know, going Julie, down. Julie won the first Verbier contest too. And uh, so, yeah, we've have a bit of a history over there too. Yeah, we were, we were flying high there for a while. I remember it was a two year span when I won every contest that I entered for two years. I won the King of the Hill twice. I won Verbier twice. And I was flying high, man. I was making good money. I was making, I'll just say I was making a couple hundred grand a year from sponsors. So it's oh. pretty different than what Julie was making. Yep. I was making oh. a couple hundred grand a year from sponsors back then. I was making between 30 and I think I topped out at 96 on my best year. Okay. But even after yeah. the first King of the Hill, you know what I got paid after that comp? After what? I won the first King of the Hill? <laughs> what? You guys guess how much money I made. I had uh, one sponsor that paid me. $600 a month. $600 a month. Well, that's, that's decent. Or maybe it was 400 actually. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah. So for me, it was amazing. It's like I was, my snowboard shop was going okay, but I wasn't making that good of money there. You know, probably making like 40 grand personally. And then all of a sudden these contests pop up. And then as soon as Verbier popped up, King of the Hill was still going. It was just like, wow. I, all of a sudden I got these multi-year contracts, you know, one at 60 grand, one at 40, another one at 30. And it's just like they had winning incentives and all sorts of stuff like that, you know? I bet those are the same companies that told me they couldn't even pay. Oh, see, Maybe now so. I'm mad. <laughs> and, then, and then it dried up. It's, you know, then it dried up after a little yep. while. So there was that first wave, though, that a couple of us got in on. When was the last time either of you went to Valdez? When's the last time you went, Steve? I got to think I about went to this for a tail, second. I went to Tailgate probably five years ago. Wait, years is that ago. the same year that I went up there with my brother? No, there was so, a contest. They held a contest there. Maybe it was a little longer than that. Maybe it was eight years ago because there was a, a free ride comp that they had. And I went up for that, you know, but I have been back there since. I have been there since then, too. I so. went up. When was that? I went up with my oldest brother, had never been there. He loves skiing. I'm thinking it was like five years ago. We bought some heli time at a Coombs Foundation silent auction. We totally scored. And it was awesome. Nice mellow, almost, almost all mellow, fun, deep pow. I want to shout out to Donnie Mills and Valdez. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I haven't seen Donnie in forever, but I still have some of his boards here in my shop in Mammoth. So I'm sure he's still around. Donnie. Yeah. I still have my Queen Bee bomber. Oh, yeah. It's never nice. been. It's never been ridden. Yeah, I've got my bomber too. It's huge. So. I was always <laughs> afraid if I tried to ride it, it might break me in half. So 
last time you both were in Valdez, were there any memories that kind of rushed you? The Sena sign, you know, you go up there and you see the sign at the Sena, Sena Lodge, T-S-A-I-N-A. You know, that's what brings me back was the Sena and playing pool at the Sena. And, um, you know, that brings it back to the early days. Um, so my oldest brother, Jerry, he's a great skier. He's like the patriarch of all the eight kids. We call ourselves the bookends right? Youngest and oldest. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have this great relationship. So we were pretty stoked to go up there and ski. We had hoped we were going to ski with Jeff, but he got hurt right before we got there. Um, Jeff, my brother, mm-hmm. still works up at, or had been working up at the Sena. The first time I flew in all the way to Valdez, my brother Jimmy picked me up And I hadn't really thought about this in a while. He picked me up at the airport, somebody's car that he borrowed or stole, hard to say, and brought me to the totem and we dropped all our bags off. And then he said, come on, we're going to go up to the pass. Without our gear, he was just taking me up there to check it out. So we get out on the highway to hitchhike, get picked up in this little blue kind of a sporty non-snow car, right? Mm -hmm. Huge speakers in the background, (laughs) in the back. Huge speakers, kind of tinted windows. This chick picks us up, and I'm in the back seat of this car, and she's cranking Journey or something on the radio. (laughs) And we're driving down the highway. It's this beautiful sunny day, and I look out the window, and I see... What I didn't know at the time was called meteorite. And I saw a meteorite without knowing anything about mountains or Alaska. I knew nothing. I just saw that huge ramp and I'm like hitting my brother on the shoulder. Jimmy, what is that? What is that? Can we ski that? <laughs> and I think it was three years or five years before I finally made it over to meteorite. And I think I was the first, I was the first female snowboarder. I don't think I was the first snowboarder though. Yeah. I remember. First with, for me. I remember on Meteorite, I remember Coombs taking me there right when people started doing it and we repelled off that um, first cliff because you couldn't really ski it yet. So we had to set our anchor and repel off that first cliff. And I remember feeling really fortunate to be part of that crew that was on that bird that time. Because mm-hmm. it was just one of the first times that people were going up there. And then the fear. I remembered the fear. You know, we'd been doing all these mellow runs. I mean, mellow for Alaska, but it's not always super mellow. Um but the conditions were good and everything was safe. There wasn't an overabundance of slough or anything. And right at the end, the guide's like, Julie, that other, that other heli's going to go hit, you know, I had pointed at something and said, it looks cool. And they're like, they're going to go hit that. Do you want to go with them? Because one of the 
women in the ship doesn't want to go. And I said, yeah, sure. So we swap out at the bottom of this run, and I jump in with this other group. We're flying up there, and I was like, wait, where are we going? Because I thought I had pointed at something else, and they took me to this big wall. And I was like, wait, no, I shit. <laughs> <laughs> huh. And they... They don't tow in, but they kind of put us, the heli sort of came in at the edge of this knife edge ridge. And I'm the last one climbing out of the heli and I'm trying to climb out and my foot can't reach. I got one foot on the seat, one hand on the seat, one foot on the uh, ski, whatever you call it. And one foot trying to touch the ground. And it was so steep, I couldn't get I couldn't get my feet on the ground. And I finally like inched my way out and I was sliding down. The guide put his hand out to hold my foot there. Cause there was no footing. And I remember thinking, what the fuck? I can't do this. I'm a mom. <laughs> and I got, you know, and I'm like holding on with all my might and I, the heli flies away and I look over this ridge because I'm literally, you know, like Kilroy with the nose and eyeballs right over the top of this ridge looking at the range and I'm looking around at the other people and I remember thinking, oh my God. No wonder I used to be so scared because I would have been up there alone when I was filming. Mm -hmm. I would have just been there by myself. And I looked at the guide and I said, wow, it's a totally different experience when you have like a whole support crew with you on this kind of knife edge. So. Hey, Julie, you remember when we, we saw that one guy that we thought died? Yes. I still remember the look in your eye when you were looking right at me. That was crazy. And we both, and I still remember looking at you and we were both like, fuck, did we just watch somebody die? Yeah. Yeah. And this guy did about 30 ragdolls, about 30 ragdolls down this rock laden thing. And we saw him kind of go over the edge. We knew what was there and we looked at each other like, oh my God. And then the guy ended up going to the hospital. You know, his board was destroyed from hitting rocks. Board but, was like, oh man, shredded. Yeah. And he that. happened to go through the only spot that didn't have, you know, 80 foot cliffs to cheese grater over. Yeah. He got crazy. really lucky. His, his tomahawks must have been, what were they? Like 30 feet apart or something? Oh, yeah. It was crazy. The holes on the, and we, you just saw the huge. 30 of them. 30 of them. Yeah. I remember that. So in that situation, you just have to watch and and hope. Yeah. I yeah. really didn't have any hope. I, we were pleasantly surprised when he found out that he wasn't dead. Yeah, we got to him terrible. at the bottom. He wasn't dead. <laughs> I thought he was going to be dead. Yeah. We kind of both did. That was gnarly. I want both of you to know that this has been an absolute pleasure and it has gone 
well over what I thought it was going to. And it has been, I'm honored. You know, I've heard about you two for my entire life. And this has, I wish I could just keep going. But, (laughs) but, but I know that like listeners would be like, Cody's just having fun now. And Steve and I could definitely keep going. Be like, wait, the more you talk, the more I'll remember. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? Well, I am honored that you called us and called me and loved sort of going back through this and it's really cool to talk to somebody about it who's done their research, who's asking good questions and sort of like inquiring about things in a way that is in a way that's more, let's say back in the day, all of the interviews were like, bro, that was sick. How do you feel? Did you eat bacon for breakfast? You know, like, (laughs) and I just wouldn't even know where to go with it. You know, I didn't, I didn't know how to answer interviewers questions. I mean, for me, the snowboarding had to speak for itself because back then I didn't speak then like I do now. Sometimes I could. But sometimes it was just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. What I want to say is I just uh, really appreciate the unique people that I met up in Alaska. And, you know, I want to mention Miles Burgett and his mom, Wendy, again, two really special people. I hope they're doing good. I want to talk about Jesse Toll, somebody we lost. Uh back then, you know, and I just need to mention him, you know, that was a real sad thing. And, uh, he should have a part in this whole thing. Um, there was, um, one other guy too, Sage, remember Sage, but he wasn't from Alaska. Yeah. Um, but those two guys, Miles and Jesse, you know, I just, always think about those guys because here's the thing those guys they grew up in valdez and i got to spend a decent amount of time with miles not as much with jesse but there was an innocence that those guys had growing up in valdez because they weren't exposed to the rest of the world like we were you know i had gone to school at university of southern california you know and then i go up and i'm hanging out with miles who has you know, never been outside of Valdez, you know, and it was, it was a really cool experience to meet people from Valdez that didn't really see the rest of the world. And I liked that part a lot. There was an innocence to it that was so, so um, enticing. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for, for chatting with me for, so long i feel like this is you know i've only done uh probably one other conversation that that is this long um but i found myself being in the same kind of mental situation 
as that last time where I'm just kind of hypnotized by the stories and the history and everything that went into those those moments in that time. So thank you. Ben, yeah, thank you. Welcome. Thank you. You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. <laughs>